We're going to be in John 3, verses 22 through 36. The Word of God says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The fret of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of God for us this week. Thanks be to God for his word. So I don't know about you, but uh, recently I've seen some of my regular rhythms of life totally thrown off. Uh, Right now, Rachel and I are both working from home. I'm really enjoying some sweet time with her. Uh, But our dining room looks like something kind of exploded in there. Her work stuff is all over the table. My work stuff is all over the table, uh, which most of you that know me know that that means that there's books everywhere. Um, It's been nice to spend some time together. I actually thought it would be a little bit more distracting than what it has been. I've actually felt pretty productive in this time, but I'm definitely missing the normalcy of my routine. I miss being around people. Uh, I miss being around our church family. I miss hearing your kids uh, in our service. I I miss seeing them run around. I miss the handshake time that we have. Uh, I I miss just even some simple things like getting up and having a cup of coffee and not having anything to run to uh, right away. And life is definitely going to change for Rachel and I uh, very soon here. Uh, We're expecting baby Brown at any moment, literally any moment. Rachel is 39 weeks pregnant today, so uh, please be praying for us as we continue to think through uh, what that's going to look like in the middle of all of this situation. Uh, But she could be coming any moment. Uh, No baby yet, but any moment we could be meeting our little girl, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, And so there's one thing that I really miss right now, and it's not my coffee, it's not my routine, it's not my own office space, it's actually Premier League soccer. Uh, So I'm going to just give a little shout out to Caleb Landry right now. I know, brother, that you're missing sports. I'm missing soccer right now really, really badly. And uh, 
It's kind of interesting because this coronavirus situation has affected many of the, the world's soccer leagues. And so my favorite team, Manchester United, is not playing right now. And it doesn't look like they're going to be able to play soccer again until the end of April. So not only are we at home in quarantine, I can't even watch my favorite sports team right now. Um, so that is just really, really tough on me. Uh, and some of you probably have no remorse right now. You're probably thinking, well, good, that's fine. You spend some time with your wife and <laughs> spend some time reading some books. And I'm enjoying those things. Uh, I'm just, I'm really missing soccer. But uh, one of the things that I love about soccer is not just the ability to be able to watch it uh, or the ability to be able to, to teach and coach. Uh, I've enjoyed coaching, but soccer has taught me a lot of life lessons. Soccer especially taught me a lot growing up as a kid in uh, this area. And there's something about being on a team, something about working together with others that was really good for me. And if you've been on a team situation, uh, you probably can resonate with what I'm saying this morning. In high school, soccer became a bit harder for me. My natural position was as a forward, and my job was to score goals. I was the guy they put up top, told to run, to get in behind, and to shoot on goal. Uh, in my sophomore year, we needed some power and presence in our defense, and our coach had decided that he was going to move me from my natural position to, uh, to the back of the field. And so my job literally changed from going and scoring goals to now stopping goals. And I hated every second of it. I couldn't stand it. My dad uh, would testify and, and hear my complaints again and again that this made me miserable. I wanted to do what I knew how to do as a soccer player. Uh, but my team needed somebody. They needed somebody to get in the back. They needed somebody to play this position. And my attitude was horrible throughout the whole time. I'd go in, I'd do my, my thing, I'd, I'd play my position, but every time afterwards, I would just be so upset that I wasn't getting the opportunity to do what I wanted to do. See, when I really look at it, it wasn't so much that I was upset that my team needed this, I was upset by the fact that I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. It was a pride issue for me. My coach had thrown me into a situation where I needed humility. I needed to do something different. But what made me mad wasn't my ability. What made me mad was that my pride was shot. I wasn't thinking of the team. I was only thinking of myself. In John 3, we see two different examples of pride and humility in Nicodemus and in John the Baptist. Nicodemus recognized that God had sent Jesus as a mighty teacher, that God was working in and through him. But he didn't fully embrace who Jesus truly was. And what God ultimately had planned through Jesus. Nicodemus knew the scriptures and the hope that there would be a Messiah to come and to restore God's kingdom. But he misunderstood God's plan to redeem and rescue a people for himself. God in his love and in his mercy sent Jesus to rescue people from their sin and from God's wrath. And by dying on a cross in their place and resurrecting from the grave, Jesus has made a way for us to be made right with God. Those who repent and believe in Jesus' work receive eternal life. Those who do not are condemned in the judgment of God. This morning, we're going to see in the rest of John 3 how pride is ugly, but Jesus is greater. So our first point for the sermon this morning is this, pride is ugly. 
Uh, Look again at verses 22 through 26. Uh, John wrote this, he said, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So in this context, what we were coming through from last week, looking at John 3.16 to 21, now into verse 22, Jesus and his disciples have moved from the city of Jerusalem into the countryside. And the text tells us that they remained there and they were practicing baptism. And it's really interesting because in John 4.2, the text actually tells us that Jesus himself did not baptize people, but he left this uh, practice, this ordinance to be done by his disciples. Uh, but John the Baptist is also there with his disciples, also performing baptisms. This shouldn't be a surprise to us through John's gospel, through the first few chapters. This is what John is known. John is known for being the Baptist. This isn't John the gospel writer. This is the guy who has been sent before Jesus to prepare the way. And they're located at this place called Anon uh, near Salim because there's a lot of volume of water. And so they're doing baptism by immersion. This means that they're actually dunking people in the water and they're pulling them out. It's not just a little sprinkle here or a little sprinkle there. It's, it's the full uh, pledge and plunge into the water and pull out of the water. It's kind of interesting, too, because in this context that's set up, John, the gospel writer, is showing us some sort of literary feature. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus is actually more warmly received in areas outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was supposed to be this religious center. It's where the temple was located and uh, where God was at the move within his people. As people dwelled in this place, they lived in this place. They were to come back to this place all the time for festivals and gatherings and these meals and celebrations to remember what God had accomplished and what he had done. But in these very city limits, Jesus, the Son of God, God sent in the flesh for us, was not received. This story of John the Baptist and Jesus baptizing in the Judean countryside is only recorded here in John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not have this account that we see here in these verses. Uh, Another interesting thought to this is not just the context of what's happening, but how John is writing to a group of people. John's writing to a group of churches that are most likely located around the Mediterranean. Uh, This is years after Jesus' death. He's writing to churches that are facing all sorts of influence from false teachers. And in fact, the church that he's writing to is actually opposing a group of people who are claiming that John the Baptist was more than who he said he was. So it's possible that John, the gospel writer, was trying to clearly establish Jesus' role of ministry and John the Baptist's role of ministry. And then we come to verse 25, and it tells us that there was a discussion that began around the topic of baptism. This conversation was between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew. It doesn't say which Jew in particular. There's no indication of the exact details of this exchange outside of the fact 
that it was about the Jewish practice of purification and what John the Baptist and Jesus were doing with baptism. Commentators have come up with three different ideas here. Uh, They say that this conversation could have been uh, that this Jewish person was asking about the necessity of John the Baptist and his baptism compared to that of the Old Testament practice. Secondly, it could have been that the unbelieving Jews were asking about the difference between what John was doing and what Jesus was doing. And the third, it could have been this question that was basically posed to John the Baptist uh, in which they were saying, well, what's more purifying, what we do or what you do? What's more effective, what we do or what you do? Or what Jesus does or what you're doing? Whatever their aim may have been, verse 26 points us to this very clear reality. This stirred up some sort of strife for John the Baptist's disciples. They, they said to him, they, they come to him and they make this statement. They say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the water, he who is literally just right here in front of us, to whom you bore witness, to who you've told us about, look, he's doing what we're doing and everybody is going to him. This statement is full of a combination of exaggeration and resentment and bitterness. These disciples come to John and they're concerned because they see John's ministry and their significance waning. They're concerned because it seems like everyone's going to Jesus and that makes them feel like they don't matter. But they had clearly seen what John had said about Jesus in chapter 1. In verses 29 to 31 of John 1, John the Baptist said this. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came with water, baptizing, that he might be revealed to Israel. Uh, So these disciples are concerned, but they're also angered. They're also misunderstanding what John has already said. They see these people going to Jesus and they think that they're on the wrong side of things. They're annoyed because their team isn't doing well. And we read these verses and it's really easy for us to think, well, guys, uh, duh, look, this is Jesus. Or guys, remember what John has already said. We just heard these verses. We just heard him proclaim this. And not just to us, but to the whole world. John just told everybody in public that this Jesus is the Messiah who's to come. Guys, do you just not get it? Do you not understand? What's wrong with you? Now, the truth is, is as we read these verses and see this exchange, while we immediately want to jump to John the Baptist's disciples and say, guys, you're totally getting this wrong, the reality is, is that this struggle exists in us. We battle with our own sense of pride. We all want to be significant. We all want people to see what we're doing, how we're doing it, and how awesome we are. Sometimes our pride is really obvious, and we see it and we say, wow, look at that person. They think they are all that and then some. Other times our pride is a a bit more subtle, and it comes in ways in which in our hearts and in our minds, we look at situations and we think, Oh, we know better. Oh, we're better equipped to do that. Or maybe we should be in the limelight. And before we start thinking about all the ways that other people outside of ourselves can be prideful, we really need to look into the mirror for a moment. 
and see some different examples of what pride might look like in each one of us. Pride could be around those that are oppositional to God. If you're oppositional to God this morning, maybe your pride looks a little something like your self-sovereignty. You might think that you're completely in control and that you have all the say in what happens in your life. Maybe you think that you don't need God or that you can have all the final say in whatever is before you, that you're the most important thing. And friend, please recognize, please hear my voice this morning. Please know that I care about you, that we as people care about one another, but you need to hear this truth. You are not the most important person that's ever lived. Please recognize that the way you live and what you confess actually has meaning. You may think that you've got plenty of time left here on earth. You might think that you are the pilot of the flight of your own destiny. But the Bible tells us that you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Would you let go of your self-sovereignty and submit to God? Uh, Friends, let's not just think that pride is limited to those who are oppositional to God. Pride is actually capable in believers too. The church should be a place where we see humility constantly on display. But unfortunately, sometimes it can be a place where pastors and Christians show some nasty signs of pride in themselves. At the end of the day, we are human, and we still have to wrestle off sin. Sometimes Christians show their pride in thinking that they don't really need anybody else. They think, I've got my Bible, I've got Jesus, I've got the Holy Spirit. I don't even need to go to church. You're live streaming this. Why should I come and sit in a, a, a pew or sit in a chair? Friend, that is the furthest thing from the truth. You were made for community. God's design for you is to be with other Christians, to be gathered together with other people. And sometimes it doesn't take the form of this individualism or uh, isolation, but it sometimes takes the form in which individual Christians use their spiritual gifts to show their supremacy. Uh, They think, well, I'm a musician, my gift is music, or my gift is mercy. My gift is administration. My gift is hospitality. I work with kids. I I do this. I preach. I teach. I lead a D group. I'm involved in this thing or involved in that thing. And we, in those statements, we don't even realize the truth, that subtle truth that is coming into our hearts, the, the hardness that is being formed within us in which we are now saying, well, because I'm a musician or because I have this thing or because this is my area, I don't want to invest in anything else. And that's dangerous. The point of our gifts is not to show our supremacy. The point of our gifts is to serve the body of Christ. It's to point others to Jesus and to exalt Him. But friends, please don't feel like I'm saying that it's non-believers that just struggle with this or just individual Christians. I want you to know that pastors struggle with pride too. We are not perfect The truth is that pastors really probably struggle with pride more than anybody. The nature of our ministry can be really dangerous for this battle. So if you're a pastor, if you're a friend hearing this this morning, please look into God's word and remind yourself that he's in control. There's still a temptation that we face with our own pride as pastors. 
There's this temptation to always have an answer, to be able to say, hey, this is exactly what this means. There's a temptation in times like this to be present and be made known. I know that pastors want to serve their churches well in crazy moments like what we're facing. But with this whole live stream process, there's a serious temptation that comes by seeing how many people are watching our videos, how many likes we're getting, how many follows and views are happening on our social media pages. There's this temptation to show our best on camera. Oh my goodness, even this morning I was thinking about putting a TV behind the camera so I could like teleprompt. It was totally nonsense. It looked ridiculous. If you could see our living room, you'd be like, what, what is going on in there? There's even this temptation that we face in not just the activity of doing everything, but also in the activity of laziness. It's like, all right, well, we're in the middle of this situation. We don't really want to do anything about it right now. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to work hard, maybe. I'll give my best here, but maybe I can just take a little bit of a break. Pride reaches non-Christians. It reaches Christians. It reaches pastors. It, and it can actually reach into the church at large, too. The church at large sometimes shows its pride by saying statements like this, we've always done it this way. Why should we change? We do it the best. You other guys are just falling short of what is necessary to make disciples and build the kingdom of God. Really, in that statement, we're not making disciples or building God's kingdom. We're only building disciples in our own image and in our own kingdom. Sometimes big churches think that small churches are missing something because they're not drawing the crowd. And sometimes small churches think that big churches are just producing some sort of emotional experience where people can come in and they've lost sight of all of the most important things. They've got lots of music and and fog machines and this and that, but maybe they've lost sight of the gospel. Friend, pride can affect us all. Pride affects you, it affects me. Pride affected John's disciples here. But listen to how John responded to them. In verse 27 through 30, it says this, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So first, John the Baptist reiterates a theme that has been consistent here in John chapter 3. That no one can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. Jesus introduced this truth to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus couldn't grasp it. He said that no one can receive the kingdom of God. No one can be born again unless God's spirit makes him alive. They're not born again by their will or their action, but by God's Spirit. It's something that God initiates, God does, and God completes. J.C. Ryle, he said this about verse 27. He said that John the Baptist was actually making a proclamation. In essence, what he's saying is, I cannot command continued success in my ministry, friends. I can only receive what God gives me. If he thinks it fit to give any one more acceptance with men than myself, I cannot prevent it. And I have no right to complain. All success is of God. All that I have had at any point of my ministry has been received and none deserved. 
he continues to explain this, John the Baptist, by saying, You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. John isn't surprised by what is happening in Jesus' ministry. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that God is working in and through him. He proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's publicly proclaiming that Jesus is the one to look to. He is the one to follow. One commentator said this, this week. said, John, unlike many of our preachers today, for whom humility is a little bit more than lip service, actually meant what he said. John was seriously grateful to take the back seat and to give all of the glory to Christ. He didn't want people to say, man, what you said was amazing. He didn't want the accolades of the crowd. He didn't want the likes and comments on his Facebook page. He didn't want to live that perfect Instagram life. He didn't embrace the glory of being in front or the glory of his majestic abilities. This doesn't mean that he was lifeless either. He passionately proclaimed another kingdom, a kingdom that existed outside of himself, a kingdom that was beyond him, beyond his ability, beyond his identity, but a kingdom that belonged to God. He proclaimed that Christ, the king, has arrived. The lamb has come to take away our sin. Repent, believe, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Friend, if God has placed you in ministry, if he has placed you as a Christian in a church, your role, the purpose of what you are as a Christian, is to point people to Jesus and to give him the glory. And then verse 29, John brings out this amazing parable. He gives this kind of illustration. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist is essentially saying that he's like the best man in a wedding. That Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the husband who is waiting for his wife. And through a wedding ceremony, we can see that the bride and groom exchange some vows They make promises to one another that are binding before uh, these people and binding before God Almighty. In our weddings here on earth, often these promises finish by saying, till death do us part. I tell every couple that I marry that the promises that they make to one another on that very day are not just the promises of that day, but the promise that they're making to that person no matter who they become in the next five or ten or fifty years. From now until your very last breath, you're making a promise before someone and before God to say, I will live this way. If you've ever been in a wedding, whether as a best man or a groomsman or maid of honor or a bridesmaid, you know the joy that comes on that wedding day. You've been with your friend. You've been planning with them. You've been looking and you're seeing this relationship develop and you are rejoicing with them, seeing that this is good. You're gleaming with joy for your friend. And though a wedding is a helpful illustration, and we can understand these roles in our terms, our picture of a wedding doesn't fully add up to what John the Baptist is trying to reveal to his disciples here. John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer 
are both intentionally putting forth a biblical image for us. In the Old Testament, the faithful people of Israel are depicted as the bride of the Lord. John the Baptist is saying that this Jesus whom he has introduced is the king and Messiah that this nation has longed for. He is saying that he is the groom. John the Gospel writer is writing to a church aware of the fact that post-resurrection, the church is the bride of Christ. Revelation 21 verses 6 through 9 depicts the marriage supper of the Lamb where all of God's people will be in his presence and they'll celebrate his victorious work in Christ. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. John the Baptist has testified to Jesus' glory. He is rejoicing in what God has given him. Even if it seems relatively small compared to what is happening across the river. He is found in an honor to serve God and to exalt Jesus. Ultimately, he confesses God's will and plan in verse 30 where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And this should really be our confession as Christians and as the church. That Jesus must increase. And we must decrease. Jesus is greater. John the Baptist expressed a great deal of humility. Humility is a godly characteristic. Humility has sometimes been thought of in the terms that I need to think less of myself. It's that idea that I miss the mark. And maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. But when we think less of ourselves, we also can go to the extreme of denying the goodness of God and how he has created us. One person said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but the idea of thinking of yourself less. If you're a non-Christian, one way you can humble yourself this morning is by receiving the good news of the gospel in repentance and faith. Jesus has died for your sin to make you right with God. If you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today, you could be saved. If you're hearing this and would like to chat with someone about the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus, would you send us a message today? If you're a Christian, one way you can humble yourself this morning is by living in joyful obedience to God. Confess your sin. Confess it to God. Reconcile with that brother or sister in Christ. Say no to the temptation of your lust. Stop watching porn. Exercise self-control. Parents, apologize to your kids for those moments where you totally lost your cool. Husbands and wives, extend forgiveness to each other for that bust-up from the other morning. Take some time today and establish a Bible reading plan and a regular rhythm of prayer. Call another believer and check in on them. Ask what they're reading in the Bible right now and how they are seeing God at work in their life. 
church, we can also humble ourselves by exalting Jesus and loving those around us well. Our community is in great need. And, and the first thing that you can do this morning is stay home. Stay home in this time to stay safe. Help others. I've emailed our police officers and our fire department, our town manager, and the superintendent of the schools this week to see how we as a church could be serving our community. So I want you to be ready to receive an email with some instructions about how we can best serve Hebron. The elderly of our town and our church can use some help with their groceries. So email Matt and Emma today to see how you can support these efforts. We can exalt Jesus when we celebrate the work God is doing in and through Hebron Church of Hope. Take the time to share stories with each other and share stories with others about how you have seen God at work within our gathering. Encourage others to serve and encourage them when they are serving. And here's a great encouragement to you, maybe an exhortation to you this morning. When we come back, I know there's going to be at least one more kid in the nursery. But I know that there's other kids on the way. And I'm expecting that, that God's going to bring people into our doors after this season, that that moment that we get to worship together again on a Sunday is going to be such a beautiful moment. But church, we need people to help in our kids' ministry. We need people to help in our nursery. We need people that will help in Hope Kids. This is a great way that you can meet a need within our church. You might not feel like you're the the perfect person to do this, but this is a need. It's a serious need in which we, we desperately need your help. Would you serve with us? Would you see God at work as you minister to other kids and to families that are in our community? Church, remember that everything is about the gospel. Why do we serve kids? Why do we serve our community? Why do we serve others? It is so we can share the good news. To share the good news that Jesus has come to bring us life. So, remember the four parts of the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. Practice it this week. Share the gospel in 60 seconds or less with your your husband, with your kids, with each other. Make it a goal to share it with one of your neighbors this week. Remember what the Bible says about being the church. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, that we are one body with many members. We need each other. And so this longing that you're feeling right now, this separation that you're feeling. Hopefully this is temporary and we can come back as soon as possible to worship together. But this longing is showing you that you were meant to be with other believers. Remember Romans 12, that God has given gifts to the church. That these gifts are to build up the body of Christ. That they're for our good and for God's good and for the church's good. But also remember the call of humility there. To not think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Remember what Paul wrote to the the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4. He said that when each part works together, we grow by building up the body of Christ so that we could attain unity, the knowledge of the Son of God, maturity, that we could receive the fullness of Christ. That as we're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine or human cunning or craftiness, that we actually grow in love. Church, we love you. We miss you. We can't wait to be with you. But church, remember, Jesus must increase 
and we must decrease. Jesus is greater. And John the Gospel writer concludes this chapter with a brilliant commentary on who Jesus is. Verse 31 through 36, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God shall remain on him. Jesus is the one above all. He is God from God. Jesus has come to reveal the truth of God. He has been given the Holy Spirit without measure compared to other prophets of the Old Testament where they received just a a piece of the Spirit. Jesus has received the fullness of the Spirit. He is the God of gods. He has been given all authority by the Father. It says that the Father gave all things sovereignly into Jesus' hands. Uh, More than anything, hear verse 36 again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. This is a reminder of last week's passage from verses 19 to 21. And even verse 18 there. That in our unbelief we stand in the condemnation of God. But if we believe in the Son, we receive eternal life. So non-believer, will you trust in Jesus today? Christian, will you live in joyful obedience to Jesus today? Church, will you exalt Jesus and love others well? Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Pray with me. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for this lesson from John the Baptist and his disciples. I thank you for the hope that we find in the person of Jesus in the remainder of chapter 3. That he is the one who is above all. That you have sovereignly given all things into his hands. That he has all power and all authority. God, we know that Hebrews 1.3 tells us now that as Jesus has been resurrected, he is seated at your right hand. That he upholds the, the universe by the power of his word. And so we worship this Jesus this morning, the crucified, resurrected Jesus, who has come to make a way for us to be made right with you. And I pray, God, that this morning we be the morning of salvation for those that do not know Jesus. May today they hear your word in the truth of what we had just spoken through this message. God, may they hear it and receive life, and may they forever be changed. God, I pray for the Christians that are gathered around in couches and in homes throughout America right now, throughout the world, uh, as we don't have this opportunity to uh, gather normally, we pray that you would help us to see that maybe outside of our normal comfortable routine, we actually really needed you to intervene. We needed you to show us that you're in charge. We needed you to show us that you're at work in ways that we can't comprehend. So Jesus, would you be glorified? Father, would you help us to honor you and to make a beautiful testimony from your church around our communities. And God, we pray for the day to come soon where we can be back together 
Uh, Lord, we look forward to hearing other saints sing. We look forward to serving with one another. We look forward to uh, some of our normal routines, but God, help us to serve well now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, from Rachel and I, we love you. We miss you. We will keep you up to date on if baby Brown makes her arrival anytime soon. We can't wait to be with you all, and we hope that you have a great week. We're here for you. If you need a call, uh, a text, or anything, please drop us a note. We would love to connect with you this week. We hope that you have a great week and that the Lord is with you. Amen.